Pride Podcast. Welcome to the Pride Podcast, the podcast for professionals in doctoral education. Today's episode is a recording of our webinar on research careers, well-being and mental health, which took place on February 3rd, 2021. Instead of putting the whole one hour recording on our website, we decided to make a summary of around 20 minutes of the most important parts of this webinar for you to listen. Our speakers in this webinar were Gabor Kishmihok and Desiree Dickerson. Gabor is the head of the Learning and Skills Analytics Research Group at the Leibniz Information Center for Science and Technology in Hannover, Germany. He also chairs the recently started cost action on researcher mental health. Desiree is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the mental health and well-being of researchers and the academic community. Having worked as a researcher in New Zealand, Australia and Austria, Desiree now works globally with universities, lab groups and academics in the pursuit of a healthy approach to research. We started the webinar with the question how institutions can support well-being and healthy research careers. Gabor started by mentioning training, but not only for researchers. Organizations can and should give uh, training in a number of transferable well-being related skills, but not only for early career researchers. I think the training should be far more wider than just focusing on early career researchers. So for instance, how to receive and give feedback for supervisors, that might be something very important um, uh, too. And uh, yeah, so having like a nice stable offer of this type of trainings can definitely add to the well-being of employees at the organization. For Desiree, it is very important how we place our value. A typical example for her is the decision of a researcher to leave academia. Lots of our students, a significant proportion of our students, of our postdocs, leave academia feeling like failures because we train that into them. We train them to believe that the only path, the only success in this academic field is to become a tenured professor. That's not the reality. That is not fair. That's not where we should be placing our value. There's many aspects that our scientific community can, can gain tools and then take those tools out into the wider community and, and, and benefit all of us, society infinitely more. But if they leave this space, if they leave your training program feeling like a failure, for not getting that next step, then we've failed them. We're not doing our job. You know, that's not, we're not really meeting that need as, as we could be, right? We, we, we need to signal in, in the offering. If we genuinely think that well-being is an issue, where are all the support services there? Where are, in what format do they take? How easily are they engaged with? But the framing is also important to show that we value well-being as something important. And we really have a marketing problem. And I know we don't like using that word in academia, but we do. How do we talk about mental health? Mental health is health. Our health, mental health is a massive aspect of our health. So how do we address health in our people? How do we care about health in our populations? Because they are suffering. So how do we, how do we shift that, that, that priority? How do we really bring that front and center for our, for our communities? Um, and how do we, I guess, how do we need those sort of more widespread campaigns? How do we narrate that shift? Because at the moment, often these dialogues take a very, very individualistic approach. We don't, we say, what tools can they have to, to increase their well-being? What tools can we have to make people more resilient? What tools can we have to help people survive this context and this, in, in this, this 
the situation that we are in. And that's, that's not fair. What role does the system have? What are we doing? How are we shifting that system? And a big part of it is putting our hand up and saying that we are not, that we are a big, we are the, we are the problem here. The system is the problem, not the individuals, not our scientists, not our researchers. So how do we support them better? I think is, is firstly putting up our hand and saying that we've really got a problem and we want to change it. One of the questions we received was how to deal with senior researchers who just believe young researchers are being overly sensitive and show no understanding for the issue. Do it anyway, right? There will be PIs at the top of the chain that refuse to admit a problem. They are winning in this field. They are winning in this game at the moment. They are, are there, they have tenure, nobody's going to knock them off their pedestal and they are there. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't embark on this, this shift anyway, despite them. Desiree went on mentioning a typical example of what she sees happen quite often. I'm two years into this. I, my mental health is suffering massively in my PhD program. My PI is a bully. I feel it's a massively toxic environment for me, but I've invested two years and I can't, I shouldn't change, right? Should I change? And the reality is, is yes, those sunk costs shouldn't negate the fact that that maybe there's a healthier space where you can thrive out there as a PhD student but as an institution how are we supporting that shift right where would do does a student feel supported in that change do we offer them alternative paths do they know that those alternative paths are there how do we narrate that shift right have students heard of these examples do we tell the story of students who changed supervisors because the environment they were in was toxic and now they're thriving in a new environment do they hear those stories no they don't because we don't share those stories so really what's the dialogue from what's the the you know what's the message from the institution in terms of there's alternative ways to do this Gabo started his answer by citing Max Planck a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. And I think this is also true for how we organize research and how we organize our work. Because as uh, Desiree also said, I think uh, there is definitely some sort of generational or hierarchical problem here that a number of um, uh, the, the scientists or the lead scientists or the lead managers who are leading our organizations grew up in a different world of science where things were, were done differently. We Last year we published the declaration of sustainable research carriers and when I can I can post a link in the chat in a moment but one thing what I, I saw in that, um, while we put together that uh, paper, is that actually the number of researchers grew by 20% um, in the past 20 years in research and academia, but the funding only grew by 10%. So actually, we, and this globally in general, okay, so there are always local uh, differences, but that means that per person, we have less resources, and less resources means less attention. Another question which was asked a lot was how to deal with problems arising due to intercultural misunderstandings and different ways of communicating. Gabor stressed that he works in a global setting, but believes institutions do not take this enough into account. 
the globalization of this work. And oftentimes this is not very well reflected um, in local regulations and rules. So organizations and management of organizations are usually focusing on, on the local situation of the organization when it comes to resources, when it comes to legislation. But researchers oftentimes work on a global scale. And this is not always reflected when it comes to the services what we receive in terms of training, like intercultural skills training, for instance, it's still not something what is you thought very well in doctoral school or no one is talking about how to work globally. So sometimes I have, um, I have, I work with people from the Philippines, from Australia, from the US, from Japan, um, also, I have a, a lot of fellow researchers coming from the Middle East or Asian countries. They have, they all, we all have a very different culture and cultural understanding of what work is. And this needs to be managed. This is something for me as a PI was um, very new and I was struggling with it a lot myself. Like how to balance this out, how to give this, um, how to say, uh, how to differentiate attention and understanding uh, people's background and motives and also sometimes arguments. So as Desiree said, it's not about the, the, the self, it's not about the researchers, but it's the communication between us. It's the space between us, what we, I believe we have to give more attention to, how to facilitate uh, our discussions and our interactions. For Desiree, this was an important point. She believes a sense of community is key. If we're asking what can an institution do, then the pillars of an individual's well-being, some of those are their sense of belonging, their sense of community, right? So how, and I think overall, as a, as a, like a doctoral of body of students or the, you know, the sports services for that body of students, then we, we, need to, we need to be asking ourselves, well, what's our primary role? And a big factor in that is is the sense of community, of creating that sense of community and creating a sense of belonging because it's through those mechanisms that our students, that our community, that our researchers truly thrive. And the stats aren't looking good, right? A PhD, as a PhD student, 65% of our students would, would cite isolation as, a, as or feel socially isolated. 40% of our academics higher up the ladder feel socially isolated and think that that's the key trigger for their for mental health issues. People, despite being surrounded by people are feeling really isolated in our community and we really need to shift how we how we engage these people how we narrate these 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 discussions and how we bring them in more readily and that, that a part of that is absolutely understanding the, the the various cultures that you have in your group it's 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 an, on a on the ground level as a pi how do i foster that in my space how do i signal to my students that you belong that i care about you that i ask the right questions that i know who you are not just that i know that you do this this you know technique well and therefore you're part of my group but who are you as a person because that's that's the foundation of your sense of belonging within that group many universities offer services but do not see their offer reaching those who would need it most so how can we reach these people it's it's in i i sound like a stuck record but it's in how we narrate these the, what we're offering here and why because at the moment the idea is is that if I have a mental health issue I'm putting my hand up and I feel like I'm saying I don't belong here part of the issue is is that even as an individual 
who is struggling with low mood, with isolation, with lack of belonging, whatever the, whatever the, the challenge, that we internalize that. We've been trained to internalize that as I don't belong here, which means I don't belong in academia, which means I'm not cut out for this. So I'm not going to put my hand up and tell the world that I don't belong there. If I already fear that I don't, I'm hardly going to tell my PI or, 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 you know, or anyone around me that I'm struggling in this space. So what, what we really need to do is it's, 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 an, it's normalizing those issues. And that's happening. If you are on Twitter at all in this space, you hear it happening, right? People are telling their stories. People are sharing their paths through to a better space and how they're gaining the tools they need to do their job better, how they are a better researcher, thanks to exploring these avenues and using these tools. So we need to get, we need to get those academic rock, rock stars who have challenges to voice those challenges and to feel comfortable saying, you know, I was there too as a first year PhD student from Colombia in, in Zurich. I really, really, really struggled with identity. I struggle with the language. I struggle with belonging. I struggle with my culture. I struggle with being that first generation academic, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a family that didn't understand what I was doing. I felt completely alone and it impacted on my mental health. Here's some of the steps that I took to approaching these things. I reached out to services and I used them. And now I have the tools that I needed to tackle this challenge, to tackle that challenge. Let's get the people who have been through these experiences to start telling their stories. Let's make it okay. Let's make it normal that we talk about these things. Gabo believes that the attention a PhD gets is an important factor. So we are living in an attention economy and world which um, you know, the world around us is seeking for our attention and wants to capture our attention. And I think this is, this is an important issue, especially when someone starts um, a PhD program. If that person receives enough attention from his supervisor, from those key people who will be involved in uh, his or her project. So, as I said in the very beginning, this, uh, this welcoming part, that, like the first six months of, of the PhD journey is super important because this is where you sort of lay down the foundation of growth, per both personal and um, professional growth. Attention, collaboration and space to talk are for Gabo the right way. And this is where organizations may have an impact, like limiting, uh, for instance, the amount of doctoral uh, candidates per supervisor. I, I see in, in certain disciplines, uh, one professor with 20, 25 uh, doctoral candidates. This is crazy. Im imagine the amount of attention those people get. Of course, um, if you get no attention, then you are a bit lost. And many people talk about resilience and skills um, for resilience, uh, to improve our resilience. I, I don't like these uh, things because I, on one hand, I see that sometimes resilience can be uh, useful, but if your whole project is about being resi resilient, that's, uh, that, that is like a dripping poison in your cup of tea. Desiree also wanted to focus on the supervisors and how to support in setting up better conditions for their junior researchers and at the same time initialing changes in the general framework to enforce this more. How does the system support a, a, PA, a PI 
in managing their workload. What are the admin tasks that they give them and where should that we place our value? Maybe more of it should be on how I can facilitate you supporting your students such that your work and your research program can thrive, right? And so what are the tools? It's cultural competence, it's, it's, it's diversity, it's inclusion, it's, it's mental health and well-being, it's, it's, it's those things as a foundation, as a preventative measure, right? As, as opposed to at the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff approach that we're taking right now. We're at, the, we're at the bottom of the cliff right now. We're seeing all of the impacts on our people's mental health. And we need to go, you know, back to the top and start putting the systems in place to change that. And obviously you're, you're, you're looking for that. That's why you're here. But I think it's really important that we recognize that, that, it's, that we need to take that systems approach, right? That needs to come from our funding bodies. I, I, you know, at what level do you apply in your funding? Do you acknowledge that you're going to, you know, maintain and support the well-being of your students, of, of your support groups, those sorts of things, and enforce it? We're not going to fund you if these are the reports that you're giving from your lab group and from your research. We need to place a value on, on people and on, uh, first and foremost, I mean, that's where the research is coming from, our people. So how are we valuing that from our funding, through our publishing through our you know who's allowed to take on PhD students if there's if you've got I mean we all know in institutions of these people that are mistreating their students we know it the, P, the, the departments know it the systems know it and these PIs are, are you know are not held accountable we need that system to change. Both Desiree and Garbo agreed that Covid has made the situation worse. For Desiree it was especially important to point out the difference between those who started their PhDs before the Covid crisis and have the experience of talking face to face with their groups and those who started during Covid. What we're seeing is there's going to be a cohort of students that have started their PhD during Covid and they are suffering and they are suffering significantly and to a degree I think much more than than we are really recognizing right a PhD is something that people have long aspired to probably they've got there they've finally made it into the program of their dreams and they've you know they've made they've moved they've moved like half a world away in some cases to be in that space and then bam lockdown they've not met their PI in person they've not met any of their colleagues so that initial engagements are very very difficult so as as a PI as a, a, a graduate community we really need to ask ourselves We're like and put ourselves in the minds of those most vulnerable, right? If you've just moved yourself from the other side of the world, you're with nobody, and now you're isolated either in a in a in a you know um, hostel or some sort of form, you know, if through the university, or if you're flatting by yourself or whatever, then what are the needs of these people? Because they are our most vulnerable right now. How do we get them into those dialogues? Because the reality is, as a, as an academic institution, as a as a research group, whatever. You can get, you can learn almost anything on the internet, lots of things on the internet. What we offer as an institution is, is community, is, is that space for discussion, for dialogue, for learning, for interaction, for pushback, for criticism, for critique. All of those things need, need to happen in order for you to thrive as, an, as a researcher in whatever form of that stage you're in. But for these people who have never met anybody and are in this space where they are maybe in a Zoom space, but they're, you know, culturally not ones to speak up necessarily, or it's, it's, They're, they're in a very difficult space, so we need to recognise that, that there, there are some very, very vulnerable people. At the end of the webinar, Garbo mentioned the cost action for mental health, for which you can find a link in the notes. You know, I think there, there are a number of uh, ways and forums to continue discussion. You mentioned our bottom-up initiatives, the, the cost network on researcher mental health. This is where we're actively trying to raise awareness of this issue. And if anyone from this community is willing to join those discussions, you are more than welcome. In this podcast, 
you could hear outtakes from our webinar on research careers, well-being and mental health, which took place in February 2021. You can find information on the speakers as well as further links in the accompanying notes. If you are interested to find out more about the Pride Network, our events, trainings and so on, then go to our website www.pride-network.eu.